dedicated to creating alternative perspectives on sports and art. My guest today is P. Scott Cunningham, who is a poet and essayist originally from Boca Raton, Florida, now based in Miami. He is the author of Yate Beo, selected by Billy Collins for the Miller-Williams Poetry Series. Scott is a graduate of Wesleyan University and is the founder and director of Oh Miami, a nonprofit organization that celebrates Miami, Florida through the lens of poetry. I found out about his work because he recently edited a collection of poems all about basketball entitled Ballers 2K20. Scott and some of the poets included in that collection will be featured on a coming podcast to share some of those poems. Scott is also a longtime Miami Heat fan, which made this podcast even more interesting to record right now. To learn more about Oh Miami and the poetry festival they put on every year, please check out ohmiami.org and follow them on Instagram at Oh Miami Festival. The organization is truly dedicated to celebrating a place and engaging with their community through encounters with poems. I also want to say that during this podcast, I mentioned that Andre Iguodala is in the twilight of his career, and I'm now, I mean, right after I said that and since then I have been feeling like I'm not even sure if it's my place to say who's in the twilight of their career or not because we just don't know what is yet to happen and so I think maybe I would like to move forward and not identify when someone is in the twilight of their career until maybe we are looking back on their career rather than when they are still in it so I just I think that that was a miss a misname for um for what Andre is doing and I just wanted to acknowledge that. Um, so I also hope that all of you listening who are in the United States are planning on voting in this upcoming election on November 3rd or earlier if your state allows. We are just under a month away from Election Day. If you can still register to vote in your state or if you want to check your voter registration status or encourage someone else to get registered, please go to www.iwillvote.com. I am phone banking here in Tucson for our Senate candidate, Mark Kelly, and the countdown is really on to Election Day. So let's do this. And as always, thank you for listening, and I hope you all enjoy this episode. So, so yes, I was born in, uh, in Boca. I was technically born in Fort Lauderdale, but I mean, I've lived in Boca since I was one or something. You know, like, I think, we, I think we moved to Boca when I was eight months old from, we were living in Broward County when I was born. Uh, and then I lived there until I was 18, and then I went to college in Connecticut. And then after college, I moved to San Francisco with a friend of mine, and he worked in politics, and I worked in, in film. And I did that for almost two years, and then I, I wanted to switch over to journalism because I, I knew at that point that I wanted to be a writer. And so I thought, like, oh, there are all these writers you know, who started as journalists, like that's, that's what I should do. So, but I couldn't get a job uh, as a journalist in, in San Francisco. And it was, this was right after 9-11. And, you know, there were kind of no jobs in general, yeah. especially not for, not for people with <laughs> zero experience, sure. which is what I was, I was bringing to the table. So, um, 
so I ended up moving to Colorado and I got a job at a very small town paper uh, right outside of, of Vail, Colorado in Eagle County. And the paper was called the Vail Trail. It was a weekly. I don't even think it exists anymore. And, uh, and I wrote for that for just shy of two years. Um, and then I knew that uh, I kind of decided at that point, I had this idea that I wanted to move back to Florida uh, because I felt like it was important for me to connect with that as, as a writer mm-hmm. to kind of understand the place where I was from. Because I spent so much of my youth just hating South Florida. <laughs> it just was such a deep abiding passion that uh, I felt like I'd never really maybe like thought about it or explored it. And so I was like, well, I'll go back there for a little bit and I'll see what happens. And I ended up taking a job teaching high school and I did that for two years. And then I went to, I applied to grad school for creative writing and I applied to 10 schools and I got into one of them. And the one that I got into was Florida International University, okay. which I I don't think I'd even ever heard of, even though I grew up in South Florida. <laughs> Where is it? Uh, it's it's in Miami. Okay. Um, they have two campuses. One is like in Southwest Miami, um, in a in a little town called Sweetwater, which has a really interesting history. Um, but then the campus that the uh, the graduate program is on is called the Biscayne Campus, and it's actually up near Aventura. So kind of like Northeast Miami. Um, and yeah, and so I moved down to, I actually moved to South Beach and then I would drive to the, the Biscayne campus for class at night. And uh, it's a three-year program. So by the time I got to the third year, I'd kind of fallen in love with Miami and had decided that I didn't want to leave. And I wanted to, I wanted to be a poet in Miami, even though I didn't even, I applied as a fiction student. I came in as a fiction student but then um, fell in love with poetry thanks to, I had a professor named Campbell McGrath. Um, and uh, yeah, I just fell in love with poetry working with Campbell and then with the other poetry professor whose name is Denise DeHamel. And and yeah, decided I'm going to stay in Miami and be a poet, whatever that means. Yeah. And a Heat fan. <laughs> um, well, and a Heat fan. I've, I've been a Heat fan since 88. That, that predates uh, writing or anything. I mean, uh, from the first, you know, I was 10 years old in 1988. So, you know, you're 10 years old. That's like for a kid, it's like the height of your romantic sports passion yeah. is like just, just flowering at 10, you know? So, um, so, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, I feel like the heat and I are sort of like the same age in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh, so I've always felt, um, that's always been the sports team that I've felt the most connected to down here. Yeah. And, um, so so when did you start sort of crossing over or using you know writing poems about basketball? That's a good question. Um I mean I always like because I came to poetry so late in life. Um you know I think I how old was I now when I entered grad school? I was I was maybe 27 uh 28. So uh, and I came in as a fiction student and I literally, I knew nothing about poetry until I met Campbell. I mean, literally nothing. So, uh, I mean, I, well, I knew what, like I studied in high school, you know, I mean, I, I knew like, you know, whatever Whitman right. or Plath or whoever, you know, whoever my, my high school, and I agreed as high school English teacher. So we certainly studied poetry, but I knew, I knew nothing about anybody like post 1920, you know? So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I just felt like, uh, 
I was just like a complete amateur and had so much to learn. Um, and so I think coming into that, like I, I felt really free because when I first started writing poems in workshops, I was like, well, I'm a fiction student. So this is just fun. This is just a distraction. So I would write about like whatever I felt like. I didn't really feel constrained by what is a poetic topic. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so I wrote a lot about film because that's what I studied in college. And and I wrote about sports because that's one of the things I like. So that all kind of came pretty naturally to me. But um, it was only later that I I think I'm more hung up now on what's a poetic subject than I was <laughs> than I was at the beginning. Sure. But um, but yeah, I mean um, uh, I think the first like you know formal thing I did with that was the first Ballers, which we <laughs> published like in serious air quotes. Um, you know, we just. <laughs> printed it at staples and i stapled it myself yeah um but uh but and that was we started putting that together in 2009 and then it, it debuted in 2010 <laughs> and it, it debuted so. pre lebron deciding to come to miami yes okay. yes uh yeah it was out before all that happened so um yeah, so there was there was none of that. In fact, there's 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 a triptych of poems about Zdrunas Ilgauskas when he was still with the Cavaliers. Uh, but yeah, but no, and I think I have a poem. There's, you, you, so you know what's funny about the original Ballers is that so four of us made it. It was me and three friends, and we didn't put names on the poems themselves. So like when you're reading it, you have no idea who wrote which poem. Uh -huh. And so sometimes when I think back on it, I can't remember even which ones are my poems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I know there's a Glenn Rice That's poem so in there. Which I'm... It is freeing, actually. It really is. Yeah. There's a Glenn Rice poem in there that specifically draws from his time with the heat that I th I'm pretty sure my friend my friend Dave wrote that poem, not me. But uh, but yeah, so that we made this little chapbook and we got this high school kid to do the artwork. Um, and then uh, I happened to, you know, meet, the poet Adrian Matika and I knew he wrote about basketball. And so I asked him to blurb it. Um, and so he blurbed the back and, and if, cause it's Adrian, the blurb is better than any of the poems in the book. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but so yeah, that was the beginning and we thought we were going to do it every year. You know, we're like, all right, this is just like, you know, EA live. Like it's, there's going to be ballers 10 and ballers 11 and ballers 12. And uh, it just, it never turned out that way. <laughs> so we didn't get back to it. So a decade later, so it's a once a decade publication as of now. As of now. Yeah. As of now. We'll see. I mean, it was, it was really fun to put together, uh, but it's also a lot of work and, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of other things going on. So we'll, we'll is see. Is there? Yeah. I, know. I feel like there is so much, I mean, just like <laughs> outside, even like anything to do with making things, there's just like so much happening. Um, yeah. It's, it's yeah. Always, always. So, right. I mean, um, I have to sit down and make a decision about that pretty soon, actually, because to get it to get it out, you know, like next summer, I'd have to start working on it now. So we'll, sure, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Well, but you mentioned sorry. you mentioned LeBron. No, not at all. So you mentioned LeBron. So after after we did the first ballers uh, and this is a coincidence, it, it was not had nothing to do with the fact that I've done this chapbook because I think no nobody nobody bought it. Nobody saw it except family members and friends yeah but um i got asked by the the knight foundation who's the principal funder for for oh miami um to do a 
basically put together a poetry contest about LeBron coming to town. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so we partnered with the local uh, newspaper, the Miami Herald, and with the local uh, NPR station, which is WRN. And we did, we launched this whole haiku contest about LeBron coming to Miami, which was super fun. Um, yeah, and, I, I've uh, actually I read the New Yorker article that was written about it, and I want to oh, read awesome. those first two poems from the from the <laughs> article because it's just really, uh, yeah, it's just amazing what people turned in. Yeah, it was really fun. I mean, I was actually thinking the other day, like I should try and go back and find those poems because I honestly don't even, I don't even know where they are uh, now that I think about it, um, and I don't even know how I read them, if I read them digitally or if I printed them out or what, I can't imagine that I printed them out, but it's possible. Um, but yeah, there were like 3000 or something or. Wow. I so mean, this was is, it. what was the prompt exactly for the contest? I don't even remember that, but it was, yeah, it was like write a haiku about LeBron James joining the Miami heat. Um, and so half the poems were from Ohio. People just, you know, like cursing him out. Yeah. <laughs> Which was also really fun because some of those some of those were really creative. Like this one, this one guy had this poem about how um, uh, he was going to propose to his wife when LeBron wins a title, and you know, and now like, you know, now he's he's bought himself X number of years because LeBron is never going to win a title with the Heat, and you know, I mean, pe people came up with the, all of these sure. different ways to be mean to LeBron. <laughs> um, so and some of them were entertaining and some of them were just silly, but yeah. And I think that um, LeBron is quoted in this New Yorker article in response to the contest. Um, he says, yeah. "Poetry is another way to express how you feel and to use me as a context. I feel like it would be good. It depends on how you use it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, amazing. I think he, he anticipated that some of those poems might not be so friendly, right? Um, I'm going to read yeah, these no, first, the... too, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Read so them, yeah. this is, um, these are both by, from Miami residents. Uh, financial despair across South Florida. Budget cuts, job loss, broken community. LeBron comes to Miami. The greatest player, the magnificent entertainer. Championships bring revenue and hope. More than basketball is on the line. <laughs> um, and that's the first one. And then... Uh, I think that I will never see more useless hype in our community, a town whose unemployment soars and businesses have shut their doors, where homeless weep and wetlands shrink. Our priorities just stink, I think, is <laughs> from another person, <laughs> another poet, another amateur poet. <laughs> yeah, this, so, I mean, so many of them were people... I mean, people, it's really funny how much invective there is in a lot of those open contests, like even stuff that's like sort of off topic, like I'm praising LeBron, but I'm going to get in like a, a cheap shot to my head. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, it's, it's so funny now because it's hard to imagine um, a player changing teams being such a huge deal at this point, but it was wild. I mean, the, the hatred for him was crazy. Right. I think that it, I mean, 
since I am a Warriors fan, like after what Kevin Durant did um, in 2016, like I feel like that started a whole new, <laughs> that took it to a whole nother level, um, just as far as like what team are you joining? <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think that like at this point, um, I don't, I mean, I don't know what another player could do that could reach that same kind of hatred uh, as, as what Kevin Durant did necessarily just because of joining like the rival um but yeah i mean yeah. it's just really intense uh yeah yeah i mean i think the two of them kind of like uh you know diffused that for future players you know right. like they they really took it on the chin in a way that future players won't because that, i mean no one will just there won't there could never be as much hatred as there were for for those two moves definitely or how they were I mean, in in both their cases, I think like how how it went down, um, how the right. the information was delivered was not well received. Yeah, I mean, that's that's I think you know LeBron is one of the smartest people in basketball, and is such a savvy person, and it's so unusual to see him make such a huge error unforced error like that right but he he really blew it with that, <laughs> with that whole televised uh i'm going to south beach thing i mean uh i mean look we loved it there sure was, of course of I, course i was at my friend david gonzalez's apartment in in little havana uh with my other friend danny palacios we were we got together just to watch it because there were there was like a couple people Stephen A. Smith foremost among them who said that he might go to Miami, but that was not the front runner. I mean, we did not think it was going to happen, but we're like, let's watch it just in case. Yeah. And, uh, and I took the selfie video of it and oh my gosh. Yeah, I, I still have it. And it, it is us screaming our heads off <laughs> and then popping a, a bottle of champagne <laughs> and, and, and laughing at the Knicks. <laughs> that is so amazing. What an amazing like document that selfie video. Yeah, it's it's. I'm so happy I did that. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think you know, outside of Miami Dade County, it was it was a complete PR disaster. So, you know. Sure, sure, and I mean, I think that like, um, yeah, I, it was not not as um, bad with KD necessarily because it wasn't you know live TV or or something like that, but that it was just um, still didn't. It was still like there was some like off putting aspects to it and you know the whole Russell Westbrook finding out from like his tweet or whatever you know just like not not great yeah yeah but I'm not here to judge the relationships between the players either (laughs) yeah yeah I mean I think um you know again so for the Durant one I'm outside of it um so I didn't even I don't even remember all of the little aspects of it but you know I remember you know a lot of the dialogue I remember around that was just oh, this guy couldn't win it on his own, so he's got to go join, you know, the most stacked team <laughs> that maybe ever existed, and he's going to make them even more stacked. And it's like, well, like, what's what's the point of even playing the games? Like, there's no one can beat this team. Uh, so it's kind of cool that, you know, I mean, they said the same thing about LeBron with the big three, that, you know, LeBron could never be Jordan because Jordan would never go join his rivals or whatever, uh, which is silly since Jordan had Pippen who was, you know, maybe like the second or third best sure, player in the league course. at the time. Um, he just lucked into Pippen. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's funny that then, 
you know, Durant ended up losing to LeBron in the finals. Right. Um, so it's kind of like an, an interesting, like, Ouroboros, you know, coming full circle there. Yeah, I mean, I just think that, like, saying that you'll never do something is problematic. Like, that will come back to hurt you later on, um, which I'm oh, sure, sure Kevin Durant sure. figured out. Um, and, I mean, it is pretty incredible. I, I don't want to talk too much about the NBA Finals because I know that it's not it's not going super well for the Heat right now. And I don't want to dwell on that because there's plenty of series left, um, and I mm-hmm. believe, in them. Um, and But I just – I think it's also um, having watched the all the finals that the Cavs played against the Warriors really closely, like, it's just so different seeing LeBron play with uh, – another really talented player um yeah having like that go to I mean of course he had Kyrie but that I mean I think that that's just that was different um so having that other sort of dominant force it's it's wild I mean you know I don't know if you saw on Twitter like Kendrick Perkins said that Anthony Davis is the best player that LeBron's ever played with Mm, better than Dwayne Wade and Wade and Wade immediately tweeted back that he agrees um and I, I think it's it's hard to argue with. I mean, to me, watching these games, Anthony Davis is the best player on the court. Like, I mean, he, to me, he's he's been the best player in the playoffs. He's like an unstoppable force. Sure, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it, LeBron having a, a big man like that who, right. you know, can also handle and shoot anywhere on the court um, and is, is, you know, I think – as as smart of a basketball player as LeBron is and as disciplined as LeBron is, I mean, that, that combination is, is really brutal. But that said, uh, Heat and seven. Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's my pick, we're actually. Gonna, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get healthy. Uh, Bam is going to be back. I think Bam will be back on Sunday for game three. Okay. And I realize when this – probably when this podcast comes out, I will either be proved to be a genius or a fool – but uh, <laughs> well, it, I think but I, it can still be. I mean, no matter. I think when the podcast comes out, it can still be Heat and Seven. It's just like going to be wild if they win four games in a row. <laughs> but, I, I, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I love that. Uh, I love where your head's at. Sure, um, totally. And I think Dragic will find a way to get on the court by Game Four. I think he'll. I think he'll find a way. I okay. mean, he's he's the guy that I feel the worst for because look like. Bam is Bam. They're going to build around Bam. Like Bam is going to be on other good teams. He's going to have other chances to do this. That's not to say he will ever do it, but he's certainly going to have chances. But for Dragic, man, he's 34. This has been the best year of his career. He's looked so good. And I just, I feel so bad for him that he's injured it. Like, like this is his time, you know, it's like, it's like the Goonies when they go down into the caves and they have the chance to, to come up in the bucket. Sure. And as a Sean Aston Scott is like, no, down here, it's our time. Upstairs <laughs> is the adult's time. This For Goran Dragic, this is his time. And he's missing it. Right. I, I feel horrible for him. No, I mean, it's so, it, I mean, just because, wasn't, he's their highest scorer in the playoffs, right? Yeah. 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 And just um, the, the fact that, I mean, two of their starters, like that's just such a, crazy loss you know from the first game to have two starters out it's just it's really hard to I was so impressed last night when they were keeping it so close the whole time I mean it was within reach for 
the whole game nearly. Um, and I mean, I think that's like the will, that's the investment. I'm like, you know, Bam's on the side. He looks like so upset to not be in the game. It's just, um, yeah, I, I really, I think they can, um, yeah, I just want to see them at, I know they can't be at full strength, but like at their fullest strength possible. Yeah. I mean, I do too. I mean, the Lakers are really good. I mean, LeBron and Anthony Davis together is just, Sure. It's it's a really deadly combo. But, you know, so I, I mean, I, I, we always knew that for the Heat to win this series, like everything had to break correctly. Uh, and they needed they needed everybody to step up. I mean, they're just, you know, they're sort of a superstarless team. So they need they need everybody on the same page and, and healthy. And uh, it's just it is a bummer that it, it hasn't worked out that way so far. But but yeah. we'll see. Yes. There's still time. It's not over. It's not over till it's over. Totally. And, um, yeah, I think that that, that's absolutely true. And, uh, it's, the Heat have been really so exciting. And I have to confess that this is the first series that I've picked them to win in. So I'm like, come on, Heat, like, you got me, like, let's do this. I mean, I wasn't rooting (laughs) against them in the other series. Like, I just didn't understand what was happening exactly. Like, how they were, how good they were going to be. Like, I didn't, I didn't quite get it. Um, so yeah, anyways, now I'm like, come through heat, <laughs> about $5 <laughs> riding on this. <laughs> well, I hope we can win you your $5. Sure, sure, sure. I have, no. a, I have a bottle of wine on the line with a, a, a poet who's a Lakers fan. Oh, okay. So, a $5 bottle yeah. of wine. <laughs> well, if I lose, it's going to be a $5 bottle of wine. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, and I want it for other reasons. I mean, I think, and I, I feel like such a hypocrite saying this but like i i think in some ways like the heat are have the more exciting storyline uh for me right now and so they're like you know a little they're the underdogs and it makes it easy for to root for them in a way that i think uh the reason i'm a hypocrite is because you know i wanted the warriors to win like five years in a row um and just like dominate (laughs) everyone so then it doesn't seem to you know like uh, be a fair way to pick who I'm rooting for now. But this whole season has been kind of like a basketball vacation for me because I just like my team is not there. So I don't have to worry about uh, what's going to happen or not happen to them or um, watch. Yeah. So anyways, it's just it's been nice to to have a little bit of space from um, mm-hmm. from that. But but, you know, things have still gotten intense once in a while. I was really like latching onto the nuggets and uh, that was a hard, hard to watch them um, lose. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I think they're also they will be back. Yeah, the the Nuggets were super fun to watch and root for. I mean, that team is. I, I really wanted Heat Nuggets just because. I mean, both neither of those teams really should have been there, and right. they're both so they're both so fun to watch. Like Jokic versus Bam is such a funny matchup, and then. Jamal Murray is, is just like playing out of his mind, which was so fun to see. So, no, I mean, Heat Nuggets would have been super fun. But, and yeah, I mean, the Lakers just sort of with LeBron and AD just sort of feel inevitable. And there's always, that always feels kind of boring. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the ratings for this series have been terrible. I haven't looked at what they are. But, um, you know, I mean, you know, basically, for the most part, you know, two non competitive games in a row is, is, is tough, especially when I'm sure. We all know. We all know. Adam Silver wanted Heat or uh, Lakers Celtics. We all know that. Um, sure, yeah. We all know that he was telling all the officials to give the Celtics and the Lakers all the calls. Um, <laughs> this, oh, this Adam Silver rigged, rigged for dear Adam Silver. Yeah. This is my letter to him. 
totally. we know that it's rigged. We know what you want. It's so obvious. But uh, so, yeah, so the, I mean, the Heat are, are much more fun. Um, and I think if it wasn't for the residue of the LeBron years, I think it, they would be a much more popular team. Um, I still think there's like a little bit of a residue of like, oh, the Heat. Like, you know, there's, mm. there's like a little bit of just like a bad taste in people's mouths from, from the Heatles days. But, but this team could not be more different from that one. Yeah. So sort of, yeah, like that villain um, uh, sort of ca- character. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, they really they really took on that mantle. I mean, they really owned that mantle. Right. And that was super fun. I mean, again, here in Miami, we loved being the villain. I mean, that was really fun for us. Um, <gasps> and we absolutely ate it up and enjoyed every single second of it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, this Heat team is complete. I mean, I, I said to – I started saying to people in, in, like, January that this is the my favorite Heat team of all time. Uh, even more than the big three, uh, even more than the the 06 team. Wow, um, okay. Just because it the the storylines on the team and the personalities and the way the team came together was so unexpected. Right. Um, and uh, and yeah, just the camaraderie and then just I just I love I love everybody on this team and and I love to watch them play is way more fun than even to watch the big three play. Um, and that I feel like some people like would like maybe balk at that, but like, you know, Wade and LeBron played so much hero ball sure, back yeah. in those days. And that used to drive me crazy right. <laughs> watching the two of them just start jacking like 30 foot threes, you know, like four seconds into the shot clock <laughs> for no reason. Totally. Uh, and, and then have to bail themselves out. And, you know, this team, like, really, they play as a team all the time. Um, so I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's super fun. Yeah. Uh, and and if, sorry, go yeah. ahead. No, no, no. That's it. That's it. I was just going to say, like, there's, there's such a range of players on there. Like, just thinking about Andre Iguodala um, and, like, Tyler Hero. <laughs> like, I mean, Andre Iguodala is totally in the twilight of his career in many ways. And it's, like, you know, still very dominant, but also um, – you know, like has a lot of the wisdom that comes mm-hmm. from having played in the finals and um, and then the sacrifices that he's made before and things like that. And like Tyler um, Hero being this really like just crazy like Steph Curry prodigy, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> able to shoot from anywhere. Just like they're just as um, it's just an interesting mix of people as well. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. And then you have Duncan Robinson, who looks like an accountant. Yeah, um, and... <laughs> I I do think that maybe his hair. I I do have some issues with yeah. <laughs> his part. Uh, yeah, I mean you know, the the guy still has a LinkedIn profile. Sure, know? exactly. He, he should not be in the NBA. He really shouldn't. Uh, and he definitely, you know, um, I think he's played better than people have given him credit for. I think a lot of people have been hard on him and say he shouldn't be in the rotation. I think he's actually played all right. But but yeah, I mean there's there's just so many unexpected storylines, and then you have the glue of it all of, of Jimmy Butler, um, who I just is like, was born to be a heat player. I mean, just, he's just a perfect fit for that team. And, uh, and so, yeah, as fans, we just, we fell in love with Jimmy from minute one. Um, and it's been a super fun year with him as like this captain with his chip on his shoulder and, you know, leading all these young guys and, uh, yeah, it's been it's been a fun ride. 
Right. Totally. No, it's um, it's been really uh, exciting and like seeing them celebrate and there just seems to be like a lot of sort of um, brotherly love on that team. And it's re- it's really cool. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. I mean, it's just it really does make it more fun when you can tell that they genuinely all like each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and they, they definitely do, you know. Uh, and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean anything if you're not winning, but it's 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 great when it is. Right, and it's going to be a great story when they win the next four out of the next uh, six games. <laughs> no, exactly. Five games, yeah, this is going to be absolutely, I mean, like, that will be a part of, like, the, you know, mini doc or whatever it is. <laughs> like, this coffee <laughs> shop that Jimmy Butler has opened in his room, whatever yeah. it is, like, that's, that's playing... Um, Playing a role, totally. You know, I, during the pandemic when there wasn't any basketball, I was YouTubing a lot of old uh, series. Uh, and mm-hmm. one of them was the Heat series from the, from 2000, they won in 2006 or seven, was it? Yeah, was 2006 seven? was their first championship, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, that was another really interesting group of people, mm-hmm. um, and I just, I just, that one stuck out to me from all the old games I watched. Just like watching how that series played out, and also was a hard series for uh, the Heat. At least in the beginning, I think like they weren't playing that well, and there was some like, you know, they were having some issues with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They were playing the Mavericks, is that right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they lost. They lost the first two games. They went down two zero. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, and then Wade went, I mean, I think Wade had what has to be a top three finals performance of all time. I mean, you know, I think he averaged something like 36 points per game in that, in that series and was just unstoppable. Um, yeah. I mean, he, he was unbelievable that series. Yeah. Uh, that team too, you know, we had Shaq on that team, which is, um, which is always a good thing, but you know, Shaq was, Shaq was a little bit on the downslope at that point, and especially defensively. I mean, he was kind of a sieve defensively. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people forget that we still had Alonzo Mourning on that team. And Mourning, like, we, we would not have won that title without Mourning being the defensive backstop on that team. Because <laughs> uh, Shaq was not interested in that at that point in his career. Right. And Gary but, Payton. But the Mavericks, and Gary Payton, the glove. Yeah. yeah and we had, and we had Jason Williams on that team, uh, Antoine Tippitoes Walker, one of my favorite heat players of all time. And, uh, and yeah, that wasn't was a super um, fun team. Pat Riley like wasn't coaching, and then he stepped in to coach like the remaining games of the finals. Yeah, he he essentially fired Jeff Van Gundy, <laughs> <laughs> or not not Jeff Van Gundy, Stan Van Gundy. Oh, okay. Me. Yeah, important um, to differentiate between the Van Gundy brothers. <laughs> definitely, we don't want to confuse any Van Gundys. No, no, um, no. Yeah, no. So, and I've always liked Stan Van Gundy. I've always thought he's a good coach, but I mean, it's hard to ever question Pat Riley's judgment. But yeah, he was basically like, uh, "Stan, it's time to time to move on to other things." Yeah, and, stand down. And, and I'm <laughs> I'm standing down. And and Pat Riley had this thing where he had some they had some like secret box that he put all these messages in and they didn't open it till the end of the year. And, uh, yeah, he, you know, he's got all these like motivational tricks and things that he does. And, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think there's a good chance that they don't win the title if, if Pat Riley doesn't come down from the front office and, and finish that out. So, sure. um, yeah. Yeah. But then, but then the Ma- the Mavericks got us back, you know, in 2011. Mm-hmm. So, Dirk, it was a whole different crew, or a lot of a different crew. A lot of a different crew, but still Wade. Yeah. Um, 
still Udonis Haslam. So there was there was some continuity. But uh but yeah, I mean he was uh, as upset as I was at the time looking back on it that I mean what Dirk Nowitzki did in that series was so magical that uh I mean I'm glad Dirk won one, you know. Sure. I mean, I'm 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 happy that it turned out the way it did. Yeah, I was even thinking, you know, um when teams get to the finals and it's kind of I mean it's such a big deal to to get that yeah. far and it kind of feels mm-hmm. of course like we have to do this now or we will never get the chance again and mm-hmm. just to think that like I guess it was four years after the Mavericks got to the finals um the first time that they got back there and I mean it's just like it, it's sort of a hopeful thing <laughs> that like when mm-hmm. you know you still have that um you still have that chance later on uh or you mm-hmm. could potentially and there's like there it doesn't if it doesn't happen, that doesn't. It doesn't necessarily mean that it will never happen. Um, and keeping that yeah. alive is, I'm sure, really trying. But also, no guarantee that it will either. I mean, totally. You know, there was that one year where the, the Mavericks were clearly the best team in the NBA, and they were the number one seed, and lost to your eight seed Warriors with Baron Davis. Right. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, totally. Everybody thought the Mavericks were going to win it that year, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I I love basketball for those reasons. Totally. Yeah. As we all know, local businesses all across the country have been hit hard by the pandemic, which makes it more important now than ever to shop and spend our money locally. I am happy to say that this episode of Dear Adam Silver is brought to you by Bookman's, my favorite local used bookstore, one-stop knick-knack shop, and Arizona institution. Bookman sells used books, records, movies, musical instruments, and more. Bookman's is a wonderful, community-oriented store. You never really know what you're going to find there, so I always keep an open mind while I'm looking. In addition to shopping, you can also trade your own used items in at Bookman's for cash or store credit. And during this time of social distancing, they have curbside pickup for books ordered ahead of time and for selling and trades please visit www.bookmans.com for more information. And grab your mask and head over and remember, Bookmans has cool covered. Yeah, we'll go heat for sure. Um, <laughs> and I just, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, more about Oh Miami, because sure. I spent some time looking at some of the projects uh, you've done. And so I just would love to talk about like the genesis of Oh Miami and then, um, basically what I understand from the website is that you take, you want everyone during the Oh Miami Festival, everyone that lives in Miami to encounter a poem. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's, that's the mission. So, and it's a month long. It goes from April 1st to April 30th. And the first festival was in 2011. Um, and so, so like I said earlier, like I went to grad school and I fell in love with Miami while I was in grad school. And I had this sort of question of what, what does it mean to be a poet? And what does it mean to be a poet in Miami? Um, and from, I had kind of done some like week long writing workshops here and there, like at writers conferences where I'd met um, writers who were older than me, you know, like in their fifties and sixties who were writing and I'll, more than once I would, you know, their, their sort of reason for being there was 
you know, like I used to love writing poetry and then I, I kind of, you know, like work and family, like I, I, it fell away and I'm trying to get back into it and rededicate myself to it. And, uh, and I saw that and I was like, wow, I could see how once I leave grad school, if I'm not engaged with the art form, it could it just be very easy for me to, to kind of slip away from it. Um, and I didn't want that to happen. So I started organizing on my own because I figured, well, um, if I do stuff and I put myself out there, then I'll meet other people who are interested in this too. So that's, that's kind of how I started organizing. I didn't set out to start a nonprofit or, or even a festival. Um, but I did like, the first thing I did was I started a lecture series, um, which really had nothing to do with poetry. Uh, and then there was, um, a group of us, uh, who were either in grad school or had just left or were, affiliated with the program in one way or another started this group called the Miami Poetry Collective. Um, and so we would write poems on the street for money with manual typewriters. Mm, okay. And, and then we published our own little journal that we called the scent journal. Um, and so we would give the journal away for free if someone bought a poem. Uh, and we did that. We did that for a couple of years, like pretty consistently. I mean, we started, we started getting invited to do it like that, at events and weddings, you know, wow, like, yeah. For a little while, it, be, it like became a thing, you know. Um, in terms of like, like you know, people were asking us to do it. Not that it became a thing, like it was ever a big thing, but um, but it was there was. I mean, we could pretty much do it any weekend we wanted, uh, and it was it was really fun, um, and it was it was a great experience because at the same time, you know, I'm sending poems out to journals, and this is really before online submissions were were the norm. So I was like putting them in envelopes and putting stamps on the envelopes and sending them out into the world and, you know, typically receiving nothing back from my trouble, uh, you know, sometimes not even a rejection slip or anything. Sure. And uh, so I was spending like so much time on these poems and revising them and sending them out and getting no response. But at the same time, on the weekends, I was out in Miami, you know, like on street corners with a manual typewriter, like, and every poem I wrote, I met the person who it was for. And I got to talk to them about it and I got a reaction uh, after they read it. And, uh, and I was like, maybe like my, my, like what I've been told poetry is, is actually not what poetry should be. Um, and that was kind of like a revelation uh, that, that didn't really set in all at once. It was a slow process. But so, but so that kind of infected my thinking of, of when I was organizing, um, and so I started bringing poets down to Miami to do to do readings and, and workshops and things like that. Uh, but then and once that was kind of successful, the Knight Foundation, who had been funding me bringing poets down, said, you know, basically, do you want to do a whole festival and what would that look like? So I kind of went away and I talked to some people, um, in particular, the, the poet Tom Healy and. And uh, yeah, we came up with this idea of doing a month-long festival where uh, every single person would encounter a poem. And the idea was, it was basically meant to be the opposite of a typical poetry festival, which is like, you know, two to four days in one location. And it's just like readings and panels and, you know, very presentation focused where, you know, we've curated the world of poetry for you and here are the poets and come listen to them and buy their books and um, you know, get up close with them. Uh, we're like, let, let's do the opposite of that. 
And so the opposite of that was 30 days. It's going to be all over Miami-Dade County, which is a huge county. Um, you know, like driving from one side of Miami-Dade County to the other is like going from Boston to Providence. You know, it's a, it's, mm -hmm. um, wow. it's, it's a hike. I didn't realize so, that. I mean, that's just such a, yeah. that's a crazy comparison. Oh my gosh. Gosh, New England is so crazy. Uh, it's very small. It's very, very small. small. I mean, I love, I like huge shout out to, to New England, but um, yeah, I'm always like, wow, I cannot believe I just crossed the state line. Like, didn't that happen 10 minutes ago? Um, so yes, pl please continue. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so we, I mean, we, you know, and a lot of this was inspired by what Knight Foundation was doing with their arts program in general, where they were, you know, they really wanted to like popularize art and, and like art going and um, in general. So we were like, all right, we'll do the poetry version of that. And it'll be this impossible mission where, you know, we'll, at the time we had this idea of let's deliver a poem to 2.6 million people, which is what the population was at the time. It's closer to 3 million now. Um and then after doing the first festival in 2011, it started to dawn on us that um, that the mission was not exactly correct. Uh, and the reason was that, like, most of Miami does not need a poem delivered to it. Like, poetry in Miami is, like, I tell a lot of people that, po that Miami is the best poetry town in the country. And that's because, it's not because, like, we have the most MFA programs or we have the most, you know, small publishers or, or the most reading series or whatever. We certainly don't have any of that, really. I mean, we have a little bit of each of it, but compared with a city like, you know, Chicago or Portland, Oregon or something where, you know, we don't have anywhere near the activity. But, uh, but what we do have is a population of people who care about poetry, uh, who don't need to be told that it's important. They already care about it. Because for the most part, they're from places where poetry is a much more important part of daily life and, and national identity. You know, they're from Cuba or Nicaragua or Honduras uh, or Brazil or Argentina. And, you know, like poets there are, are completely different. Uh, like they're just it's, it's a different thing. I mean, poetry is just more important. Um, so so you don't you don't have to sell poetry to Miami like Miami already gets it. Um, so rather than delivering the poems, we decided, you know, encounter is a better word because just because you care about poetry doesn't mean that there's a poem in your life in April. You know, it, right. you may not have an experience with poetry. So uh, more and more what we tried to do is uh, less like we're not we're not taking sand to the beach, you know, but like the sand is already on the beach. Like so what we're going to do is try and make April this really special month where poetry comes alive in a different way. Um, and that's meant a million different things as I'm sure you've, you've seen poking around on the website. Uh, but we've, we've tried to be as creative with it as possible. And uh, the main way we've done that is we collaborate with other people to do it. I mean, uh, the most fun part of the festival is that we don't create it ourselves. We create it alongside individuals and students and organizations and artists. So, so yeah, so that's, that's the festival in a nutshell. Right. So you take submissions from people about how to have these poems or or lines from poems encounter the greater population. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and, and originally, you know, we were looking for like canonical poems. And then again, we very quickly realized, like, well, why are we why are we like going to old books 
to find these poems when Miamians write amazing poems all the time. So we started this sort of ecosystem that we call civic publishing, which is basically that we, we go out into the community in a variety of different ways and we collect poems from Miamians. And then using the festival projects, we, we sort of broadcast those poems back to the city. Um, and a lot of those ideas for broadcasting them are from people submitting to our request for proposals, which coincidentally opened uh, two days ago. Um, okay. for the 2021 festival. Nice. I did. So, I saw a link for proposals. That's so exciting. Yeah. And so, you know, because the, the festival is going to be mostly digital again. Um, so it kind of opens up people who are not from Miami to participate. Um, so, so I definitely encourage people who aren't, aren't from here to, to send us something, but, but so, yeah, so it ends up like, you know, just, just to be less abstract about it, um, painting a gigantic poem by a third grader on the roof of a building so that, when planes fly over the building, passengers can read the poem or, you know, gold leafing the a poem into a urine hole <laughs> in, a, in a men's <laughs> bathroom. Um, or, you know, uh, at the first festival, this artist, Augustina Woodgate, made clothing tags and sewed poems into people's clothing uh, and then also went into thrift stores and would clandestinely sew the tags into like pants and shirts so that when people bought, you know, the clothing, they'd open it up and there's like this secret poem inside yeah. of the poem. So, so stuff like that, you know, stuff that's fun, stuff that that's joyful. Yes, there is there. I felt like based on the um, sort of different uh, encounters that I had seen that you had done, there's something really celebratory about uh, some of the ways that that people are finding these poems and um there was the one where you had uh, painted some lines from um, different poems onto like the tops of different structures in Miami so that people who are flying in mm -hmm. and out could could see this uh, you know that it was there for them to read <clears throat> just such mm -hmm. a cool thing that like just dimensionally thinking about like different ways that people are moving through space. Um, and that being mm -hmm. a very, you know, standing in contrast to the to the plastic shells that were created where you have the the um, I guess it was like a, a Bluetooth inside the shell that I mean, they look like real shells and yeah. people can pick them up and, you know, on the beach and and hear poetry. A Ocean Vuong's voice yeah. reading a poem yeah. like <laughs> so incredible. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think, you know, we look at it as. um the, the narratives around a city are so controlled by such a small number of people. You know, I mean, um, pretty much, you know, the people who own land and have a say in politics and who have the most money are the ones who, who get to tell you what a city is. Uh, and for us, the festival is a way to sort of speak back to that and give, give the microphone or the megaphone or whatever you want to call it to, to everyday Miamians, you know, the people who actually live in this place and experience it um you know in the way that most people most of us experience it so that's you know that's why we really like like putting text in places where people can encounter it because it's a way to let the city speak for itself uh and sort of cir circumvent those power structures uh and so that's that's why it's become really important to us to create this ecosystem of okay yeah sometimes we're using you know like an ocean vong uh, who's not from Miami, but is, you know, I mean, Ocean Vuong is like one of the best poets alive. So, sure, you know, of course. Like, you can't really like go wrong with an Ocean Vuong poem. But, uh, but for the most part, you know, we're trying to like 
give give those microphones to Miamians and and use their work and um, yeah, just point out the fact that like this this is the best city in the world because of the people who live here and any any conception of Miami that that doesn't start and end with those people is is a lie, you know, and is not not what makes the city great, you know. So it's not it's not the real estate. It's not uh, you know, yes, I love the sports teams as much as anyone, but of it's course. not the sports teams. Um, it's not the, you know, not even the museums or the, the cultural centers or whatever. It, it's the people uh, and, and all of them. So that's that's what gets us up every morning to do this is like a chance to get other voices into the, the conversation and into the civic commons. Yes, and I think this level of reimagining um sort of how poetry can function where poetry's proper places uh who has access to poetry and whose poetry gets heard or seen mm-hmm. is so exciting uh and i think that i mean you said that a little bit earlier in the conversation about when you were sending out your submissions and you were like is this like how i've learned to interact with poetry and and the world of poetry is that how I want to do it. Um, I, I'm not sure you said it so much better, so much more poetically than I am saying it now. <laughs> um, but I'm just thinking, I mean, and maybe you can say it again that way, but just this idea of, of saying like, huh, is this the, is this the best way? Yeah. And I mean, you know, look, the, the way that, you know, I looked at contemporary poetry uh, in a way that, you know, I think a lot of people, looked and continue to look at contemporary poetry is through like a very narrow lens. I mean, it's, you know, it's through the lens of, of academia and, you know, I mean, you know, poetry MFA programs are only as old as the second world war. I mean, uh, and by the way, (laughs) as a side note, the first MFA program created at Iowa was partially funded by the CIA. So like, this is the, this is the history that I did not know that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I mean, MFA programs are a fairly recent phenomenon and, and the idea of poetry, I think living inside of universities and being, uh, fun, solely funded by universities is a pretty recent notion. Um, and look like I, you know, I'm definitely not anti-university, um, at all. And I love the fact that poets have these like jobs where they have benefits and, and job safety and. Um, I mean, I do not want that to change. I like, yay, universities. Like, <laughs> but, but the idea that all of poetry should be contained within that world is, is absurd and ridiculous. And it's never been true, um, even when at the height, you know, I think of like, you know, the university MFA-ness, whenever that was, and maybe it's now, I don't know. But it's never been true. And there's always been poets who operated, you know, completely outside of that paradigm um, and who were writing incredible work that, you know, unfortunately in some cases like only gets recognized later. But, um, but yeah, I mean, poetry's always been bigger than that. You know, the, the, the story that I tell over and over again, um, from my life is my grandmother, Ada, who my, my daughter's named after. She, she loved poetry. She never took a writing class in her life. Um, you know, never doesn't have a degree. I don't think in anything. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, never went to college. So, uh, but she loved, she loved poetry and she read it all the time. And it was just a thing that she did for herself. It was very much like um, her passion. And, 
for the most part, she read haiku. Like that's what she liked. So she had tons of different books of, of haiku and translation like Busan and uh, Isa and, you know, um, Basho, and, you know, all the sort of like, you know, big Japanese haiku masters. And she would, um, after she died, we discovered that she was writing her own haiku in the margins of those books. Um, so we found all these little poems that she had been writing. Uh, and I always say that like, there's, you just, you don't know who cares about poetry. You just, it's that, that's the beautiful thing about it is it's such a, you know, it can be, it can obviously be like a huge public art form, you know, but it, it can also be a very private art form that people uh, interact with in their own way. And, and some people only ever love one poem in their whole lives. And it doesn't mean that their interaction with poetry is any less than those of us, you know, who are, you know, making a living off of it. So um, just poetry is so much bigger. And, you know, I, I, I want the festival to reflect uh, how big it is. Um, and, you know, we'll never be able to do it. Like poetry will always be bigger than we can possibly encompass it. But, you know, our feeling is that we should at least try, you know. Yes. And I think the other thing that is so, stands out to me so much is just um, the idea that it just takes one line to to make you think. So, yeah, of course, you know, I think on, on one of the videos on the website that's about the 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 text that's painted on top of the roof so that you can see them from the airplanes like in that video the girl who wrote the line that we see painted she's reading the whole poem not just the line and Mm -hmm. I just like I I love I mean I love hearing her read it and I'm also like I love the idea of you know kind of pulling one thing um out and that and that having a lot of power yeah yeah and that's that we also love that process. Um, and that's especially fun with kids poems mm-hmm, because yeah. kids, kids are just like amazing at nailing a line, <laughs> like, you know, um, because their, their, their minds are so free. Like they're, they're just like, not, you know, I mean, this is like, this is not my thinking at all. Many people have said this, but, um, you know, basically we have to grow out of being poets. Like we're all naturally poets, like as kids, mm-hmm. like you don't have to be taught how to be a poet. It's like, you basically get taught not how to be a poet by, by the world. Um, and then, you know, you try and I think a lot of the journey of trying to write poetry is trying to regain the thing that was so natural to you when you were a kid. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, these kids just like uh, their, their minds go all over the place. You know, they just like jump all around. And so because of that, to me, they land much more frequently on lines that just rip your heart out right. than, than the rest of us. And so it's always really fun to read through the poems that the kids are writing and be like, man, can you imagine that line like on top of a building or like, you know, it's just really big. Like it'll, it'll just, it'll stop people on their tracks, you know? Yeah. That's uh, and it, Oh, sorry, it go does. Ahead. Yeah, this particular <laughs> no, no, no. this particular line that's on this roof says, "I am from a place where it does not snow." Um, I mean, yeah, it, it just really so simple, so straightforward, yeah, I mean, so so rhythmic. Yeah, it's it's like a, I mean, it it's like an anthem, you know. I mean, it 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 could be a civic motto or something, or um, and it also it says so much in it but it's also so big hearted and open that I think 
you can read a lot of different things into it. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, uh, these reading the, the poems that kids in Miami write is just like, it's, it's the most fun part of the job without a doubt. Yeah, I <laughs> like, bet. No, totally. It's like, I mean, a lot of times in the office, we'll, we'll read them out loud to each other and just like, we just, we just start laughing that like we get paid to do this. <laughs> it just seems unfair. <laughs> sure. No, it's yeah. really, it's, um, it's really great stuff. And, um, I'm just going to also share with everyone listening that there are going to be some poets on um, this coming, I think we're recording on Friday evening, I hope, from um, an edition, let's see, of the Ballers uh, publication that you edited uh, to share some of yes. their poems, which uh, is really exciting. And this this collection is published by... Um, a press that is part of Oh Miami. Yeah, so we're um, we've been publishing books since, I mean, really since the beginning. But um, and we've kind of kind of published them under different names, <laughs> which is I realize not ideal for marketing. But um, <laughs> but yeah, we uh, we have like a small publishing outfit which is called Highlight Books, but we don't do every project under the name Highlight Books, and there's. I won't go into why, and it's not very interesting. But, uh, but yeah, it's just published by like Oh Miami. And, you know, okay. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> well, no, I just, I mean, I'm so excited to have because I mean, this was such a collect, amazing collection of poems about basketball from so many um, different perspectives. So I'm really excited to have some of those poets on to to read their poems in their own their own words. Yeah, and those are. Man, they're they're great poets. Like, I mean, what's cool about doing a a poetry basketball zine, and I, I'm certainly not the first person to do it. I mean, other people have done it too. I've read some other really good ones. Is that there? There's so many poets who love basketball, and I think um, who write about it in really beautiful and original ways. So it's it's an embarrassment of riches in terms of the crossover between poetry and basketball. Yeah, that's really wonderful. Um, of course, like I'm kind of on the outside of the poetry world because I have taken poetry classes get, while getting my MFA, but like I was part of a studio program there, mm -hmm. so I don't, I don't have like a poetry or poet community, um, mm -hmm. and so it's just so interesting that you're saying that about that 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 a lot of poets love basketball. I mean, I, I get why they do and it makes total sense to me. And it's probably for a lot of the same reasons that I love it as an artist as well. Um, but I just, I'm just so excited to like get to hang out with some poets <laughs> essentially. <laughs> and and yeah, just like talk basketball and um, like listen to their interpretations of the game and how they've taken in like sort of regurgitated something back out. Yeah, and they're... I mean, they're fascinating people, so, I mean, it'll be super fun. Yeah, this is um, a preview. This is, a, like, we're, <laughs> we're convincing everyone they got to listen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. Yeah. Good. Great. Well, I'm so excited um, that we got to talk a little bit about Oh Miami. And if people are interested in submitting their ideas, so you can be from outside Miami and you can submit your idea for how to – uh, propose an encounter for how someone can encounter a poem. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's just under the submit tab on the omiami.org site. 
Yeah, I, th- I think if you go to omami.org now, it might even be the, the first page you come to. Okay. Um, but yeah, just if not, look under submit. It's not it's not a very hard website to navigate because everything everywhere you can go is on the left column. So um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, go check it out. I think submissions are open until November fifth. I think they close. So so basically the month of October and a little bit into November. But yeah, no, we, we'd love to hear your idea. Um, and there's please read through the guidelines. I mean, this year is a little different for us because, you know, it is going to be primarily an online festival and um, we're going to do things in public space, but only things that are pretty safe um, and aren't really technically gatherings. So um, so, yeah, like, please read through the guidelines and yeah. we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and I'm just seeing this quote on your website as well. I think it's from the New York Times, and it says, if you live in Miami and you do not read, recite, or listen to a poem in April, something has gone seriously wrong. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just like the, your mission is just amazing. So it's <laughs> um, oh, exciting, yeah. And I think um, <laughs> tomorrow could be really exciting. So uh, I'm looking forward to the game and uh, we'll be sending some good vibes your way for that. Um, and yeah, thank you again for coming on and staying up, um, you know, past whoever's bedtime or, you know, like <laughs> to a non-business hour. I appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> no problem. Great. So I will email you as soon as the episode is up and we'll just, oh, and then maybe I'll see you on Friday. I'll send out a Zoom link once I hear back from folks. And um, yeah, that's great. Awesome. All All right. right. Thanks Thanks so much, much, Abigail. Yeah, take care. (laughs) See you. Bye.